15th chapter of the book of Romans, three verses, 14, 15, and 16. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given from given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering to the Gentiles might become acceptable. You're going to lay the groundwork for me, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know whether you're aware of it or not. It seems like a long time ago, but a year ago, last Sunday, we started a study in the book of Romans. And because it's been a year, you've probably forgotten some things. So I want us to give a quick uh, review of this book as far as an outline is concerned. Now, I'm not going to go back over all the old sermons, just the outline. The book of Romans divides into five sections. The first 18 verses are an introduction to the book. It's called a prologue. From verse 19 through chapter 8, there is this marvelous doctrinal division or section that deals with how, you, how, you, how you're lost and how you get saved. And it deals with the great doctrines of justification and redemption and sanctification. In chapters 9, 10, and 11... There are words presented to the Jews. How does the gospel relate to a person who is a Jew? Beginning in chapter 12, there is the fourth section, through the middle of chapter 15, there is this very practical section that talks about how you put these great truths of doctrine into shoe leather, how to make them practical and livable. And from the middle of chapter 15 where we are tonight, to the end of the book, we have what is called the epilogue. And the epilogue is the kind of the wrapping up of the package. It's tying the ribbon around the package. Now I want you to find six phrases, because if you're using your outline, I'm going to talk, I'm going to just briefly give a general overview of the epilogue. And I want you to find six phrases and circle them. Beginning at verse 14, there is the phrase, and concerning you, my brethren. You found that? Just circle that. Beginning in verse 17, that's 14, beginning in verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus I. Circle that phrase. Beginning in verse 30 of chapter 15, now I urge you, brethren, and circle that. Chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you is a phrase you circle. Verse 17 of chapter 16, Now I urge you, brethren. And verse 25 of chapter 16, Now to him who is able. Now generally, there are, five, there are six things that go in this epilogue, that go with these phrases. I want you to put these down in your worksheet, if you will. Under the first one, which we'll deal with tonight, he's, he's, he's writing to Roman Christians and he is going to describe to them the characteristics of competent Christianity. That is, 
What makes a competent Christian? Now, we got a lot of Christians, you know, but are they competent in their Christian life, Christian witness? The second section has to do with the Apostle Paul talking about himself, his dreams and his goals. And all of a sudden, in this section of the epilogue, we're invited into the, in, the, 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 the secret life, the personal life of the Apostle Paul for the first time. Verse, the third is, has to do, now I urge you, brethren, with prayer requests. He's calling on them for, and gives them some prayer requests. The fourth, which is, I commend to you, that is, there are some personal greetings, personal greetings, fifth, a final warning, and sixth, sixth, the closing benediction. Now, in a very general sense, you have this epilogue, that is, the wrapping, the, the ribbon on the wrapping of this great book of Romans. Now, specifically, what Paul is doing specifically is commending them. He's congratulating them. Why is it that it's so much easier to criticize somebody than to commend, to commend them? You ever notice it's a whole lot easier to find the faults in others than it is to find that in them that we commend? I don't have a bit of problem finding something about you that I don't like. I, I, are, you, are you like that? Isn't it a whole lot easier to find the wrong that is in people than to find the right? There are all these stories about Michelangelo, the great sculptor. He took a big old boulder and he made an eight-foot statue of David out of that. There are so many unique stories about that work that he did. Someone said that when he finished the work, he took a stick and he was so caught up in it, he, he smote it and said, speak. I mean, it, it looked like it could talk. I read somewhere where a person walked up to the statue of David that Michelangelo had carved and thought he saw its muscles flex. It was lifelike. Michelangelo said, It is, has been my aim to release the angel imprisoned in the stone. There are people like that in this auditorium tonight. There are people up and down those pews where you sit whose aim in life is to release the angel imprisoned in you. And aren't you grateful that you can look back over your life and remember those people that had it not been for them, the angel would still be imprisoned there. But they saw something good and worthwhile in you, and they commended and encouraged you. That's what the apostle is. Not the first time he's done that, as a matter of fact. Would you just flip back right quickly to the first chapter and look at verse 8 with me? Verse 8 of chapter 1, he says... For first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I love it. What Paul is saying is this, everywhere I go up and down this earth, I hear how your faith is. And everywhere I go, I hear proclaimed your faith. So that Paul just has a, he has a unique, you wouldn't think this about this guy, but he just has this ability to, to recognize the angel imprisoned in those folks and his aim in life is to release. He writes this epilogue at the end of this marvelous book filled with doctrine to commend them. Now, 
in the commending of these people, he notes five characteristics or six of competent Christianity. I want you to notice them with me. Because at the end of this thing, I'm going to give you a little test. What makes a competent Christian? Number one, they are inwardly good. They are inwardly good. He said, I am convinced that you yourselves are full. Notice that, are full of goodness. They are inwardly good. Ernest Havner says that this goodness here is not a negative disposition, but it is rather a moral excellence wrought in the fabric of life by the Spirit's indwelling. What he's saying is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, when you receive Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell your life and to abide there, He begins to produce and provide the material of goodness because He dwells there. I ask you, are you the person, the kind of person that just emulates goodness? Someone said that a good person who has inward goodness to the self-condemned, he is gentle and kind. You're listening? To the self-condemned, the good person is gentle and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, he is considerate. To the weak, he is gentle. To the stranger, he is hospitable. Goodness encourages another person not to be afraid. Inward goodness is the desire always to do what is right. Now, it doesn't mean that you will always do what is right because we all fail and we always all miss the mark, but it is to desire never to do anything else. A person who has inward goodness has a burning desire to do the right. He said, I commend you. This characteristic about you, inward goodness. Second, they were well informed. He said they are filled with all knowledge. And you say, you mean that a competent Christian knows everything? No. That word fill there is an interesting word. It's not the normal word that we think about when we think about being full of something. As a matter of fact, that word in the Greek text is a word that means to carry out. Now watch what he's saying. He's saying, you are competent Christians because you carry out the knowledge you have. You carry it out. You follow through with it. It's not that you just take this information and you, and you store it away, put it in your pocket. But you have the ability to take what you have received, the knowledge you have received, and carry it out. You're able to carry out the techniques of Scripture so that the truth doesn't lie dormant in you. You live it out. I've just finished reading a marvelous book called Overhearing the Gospel, and it's a difficult book to read, but it, it all, it, it's based on the premise of um, Zorin Kierkegaard's philosophy. Now, not everybody here is going to go along with Zorin Kierkegaard, a Danish existentialist, but Zorin Kierkegaard makes a statement, that's the premise of this book, that there is no lack of information in a Christian land there's a lack of something else. And the whole premise is that the problem is not that we've never heard the gospel. The problem is that we've done nothing with the information we have. I just have a feeling tonight, 
Most of you have heard all the sermons there is to preach. <laughs> I mean, you can have a revivalist or you can have a pastor. You've heard it all before, haven't you? The problem is not that we have lack of information. The problem is that we don't carry it out. And the, and the, and the interesting thing about competent Christianity is this that they take the techniques that they know and they follow through on them. You know what the world is saying? The world is saying, listen, you don't impress me with all that you know. I want to see it lived out. I want to see somebody carry through with it. All right, third. They admonish one another, he says there in verse 14. You admonish one another. Now, we don't use that word very much, admonish. The word in the Greek is to put something or to place something in the mind. To place something in the mind. The Williams translation of this uh, statement gives us an insight on it. He says that you are competent to counsel. You are competent to counsel. And what he's saying is this. Now watch this carefully. Competent Christians are those who have the will and the ability to place in the mind of another wise counsel. Admonish one another. I love Proverbs 27, 6. says this, Trustworthy are the bruises caused by the wounding of one who loves you. Now what he is saying is this, that there are some people who love you enough to place in your mind counsel or to admonish you. That is, rebuke you when you're wrong and corrects you when you're wrong, and sets you straight when you're wrong. And he says that bruises, and those bruises linger, but they are wonderful bruises, the wounds of somebody who loves you. Now, I have a, 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 a deep personal conviction that, that uh, I need more counsel than most folks, although I do a lot of counseling. And every church that I've pastored in, 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 in low, low these many years, I've tried to find people that I, um, whose counsel I seek. And for the 10 years I've been here, I don't suppose that I have missed over maybe five or six or seven days, seven Fridays, that I've not met with a group of men, not just to pray with them, but to have them counsel me. Now, sometimes what they tell me, I don't like. I mean, it kind of hurts. But whatever I, you know, whatever success I have in what I, I'm, I'm convinced that a part of that is the fact that there are some people who care enough about me to help me stay straight. Augsburger has a marvelous book called Caring Enough to Confront. He says we have five alternatives, and these are the five alternatives. Number one, I'll get you, I'll win, and you'll lose. Second alternative, I'll get out. How many marriages do you know where that philosophy is practiced? I can't get along here, so rather than any more confrontations, I'll get out. Third, I'll give in. I want friendships so bad, I'll do anything to have your approval. I'll just give in. Fourth, I'll meet you halfway. Sounds good. But sometimes even there we have to sacrifice deeply held beliefs. The fifth alternative, he says, I care enough to confront you and I want you to confront me. Competent Christians 
are people who care enough to confront one another. And we need that in the Christian walk, don't we? I see, we, I see you don't agree with that, but that's all right. All right, number four. The fourth characteristic of competent Christianity is found in verses 15 and 16, and it is a ministering missionary heart. A missionary heart. Now watch this. Let me read that again. I've written boldly at some points because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel, that my offering... Now, Paul is saying that competent Christians are people who have a missionary heart. The world is on their heart. The lost of the world is on their heart. Is it true with you? Now, I commend you for being faithful and wonderful people. And I, know I was sharing with somebody today, I've never been where there is a greater fellowship. I commend you for that. But are the law, really, are the lost people of this town really on your heart and mind? Does Jesus Christ, making Jesus Christ known obsess your thoughts and your dreams? Wagner has a book called Stop the World, I Want to Get On. And in this book, he says, every day, 55,000 people are born into the family of God. That's 20 million a year. That sounds great. Until Wagner reminds us that while 20 million people this year are born into the family of God, 74 million people are born. And so he has what he calls the fourth world. And the fourth world is made up of all the people, no matter where they are, whether they're in Africa or Chicago, who have never given their heart to Jesus Christ. And he says this fourth world is growing, and there are people in it of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and every year 54,000 people join the fourth world of those who know not Christ. So that every day... 148,000 people vanish off the radar screen and are lost to God. And while we're in this service for one hour, over 6,000 people will go to hell. What about the people on your neighbor, in your neighborhood, in your dorm room, in your dorm floor, in your block? What about the people who live in your own house? Strangely enough, I've been out to visit, knocked on doors, questioned people. Well, what about your husband? Well, I don't know what he is. I don't know. Is the world, the fourth world on your heart? Competent Christians are people who have a missionary spirit whose heart beats for the lost. And there's a fifth. They are disciple-makers. Now, I don't know how else you read verse 16, except you read it like this, that a competent Christian is not just somebody who takes in for himself. There's not just this inner goodness, but he creates in the context of development disciples. And he talks about setting apart by the Spirit, sanctification. What he's talking about is spiritual pediatrics. Now there's um, obstetric, 
There's, there's the bringing in to this world, but there's the nurturing of the babies. Now, it's no small matter. Whatever happens, whatever happens from, from this week, it's no small matter that there were people lined up here professing faith in Jesus Christ. Young people, and children. Now, what are we going to do about these people? See, Somehow there is an obligation that we have to practice pediatrics, spiritual pediatrics. That is, nurture these people to become disciples of Jesus Christ. For evangelism is completed, not when you win somebody to Christ, but when you prepare him to win somebody. Can you imagine a mother going home with a baby on her arms, right fresh out of the hospital, tosses the baby in the bed and says, Now, if you, don't, if you fall out of the bed, you don't eat properly, you just weren't sincere. You know. And so we bring these people into the church... And we set them down and we expect them to grow. And if they don't, we cluck our tongues and say, well, they must not have been sincere. Now, here's the question to test. The exhortation. Look at your life tonight. The characteristics of a competent Christian. Is there inner goodness? Is there inner goodness? Are you carrying out the knowledge that you have? Do you care enough about others to confront admonishing one another? Is the world on your heart? And do you, are you committed to the discipling of other people? The nurturing of people? Second question. How about your ministry? Now somebody developed, his name, his name was Peter obviously, the Peter Principle. Some people understand this a whole lot better than I do. But the Peter principle is that a person can be promoted in his vocation, in his work, to a place where he can reach a level of incompetence. That is, he can be promoted till he gets to the place where he's promoted one step farther than he should have been promoted. So he's promoted to a level of incompetence. It just may be that the Peter principle applies in the Christian faith that we get to a place of incompetence. Now, it doesn't have to be that way because a Christian can have a daily renewal. And if there is no inner goodness, there can be renewal of that inner goodness. And if he's not carrying out the knowledge that he has, the, the idea is not to get more knowledge, but to have that that, that transformation, that change that takes him beyond the knowledge to, to apply that in life. And he not only gets the, he not only has the ability to apply that, but he has the world on his heart. And he prays for this burden until the burden is so great on his heart that he must share. And he reaches out and nurtures and cares. Now we can have a revival in that happen, or we can have it, you know in the quietness of our own life. I was, uh, I was out with uh, Steve, and he, he told me about this. He was off in this revival, and this, 
pastor said to him one day, she said, he said, I'm going to take you to, to visit the cat lady. He said, okay. And he said, we went to this house, and this lady had 99 cats. I said, I bet that smelled good. He said, Ever, he said it was sterilized. He said you could have eaten off the floor. And, and, and when the cat would finish eating, you could eat out of the place. You'd sterilize them. So it was be- just clean as a pen. And they built this room on this house for these 99 cats. She had 99 cats and eight dogs. <laughs> and he said, a little humor, he said the song leader's with him, and the song leader was a black man. He said he looked at the lady and said, I, Can you imagine being a mouse in this house? You know, about <laughs> three o'clock at night, you go to the refrigerator, mm, I want some cheese, and look around, there's 99 cats in the stairs. And he said, I witnessed to this lady, and she said, oh, I, I can't do that. I can't become a Christian. If I become a Christian, I'll have to go to church. I can't leave my babies. He said that woman's cats were literally sending her to hell. And he said the church got a burden for that woman, and they started praying for her. And lo and behold, one of those cats got a disease that was highly contagious spread through that whole group and every single cat and every single dog died. And that lady got saved and is now active in that church. Here's the point. When you and I are competent enough that we get a burden on our heart that is the result of the inner dwelling Holy Spirit. A burden for people, not for numbers to count or pews to fill, but a burden for people that is willing to take all this knowledge that we have acquired beyond Here, we're going to see things happen like happened there. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will make us to be, make us tonight to become a Christian who's competent. For I pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations. Listen to them. There's an invitation tonight for you to receive Christ as your Savior. By the witness of the Word of God and the testimony of believers, you can be saved forever from your sin and guaranteed heaven if you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight and open up your life to Him, committing your heart and life to Him. An act of faith makes the difference in all eternity. Receive His gift by faith. An invitation tonight for you to join the church. Or maybe you failed the test and you feel some conviction about that. Or maybe you'd like to come and place your life in this fellowship while we stand to sing. We invite you to come. You'll need to be coming from the first word.